The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. us, we've been studying the Ten Commandments. Last week we came to Commandment 7 as spoken in brief one-sentence form in Exodus 20, verse 14. I sought to show you that, of course, the definition of the commandment, or at least what it actually prohibits in practical terms, is not contained here. And we needed to go back to God's foundation of marriage to understand what the breaking of marriage would be. So we went to that all-important chapter of Genesis 2. I'm going to read the commandment once again and then go forward to a New Testament chapter, Romans 1. This Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to deal with other things that come under the broader definition of what adultery is. That is, any sexual activity outside the bond of man and woman in marriage. And there's a most important subject that is not by any means just a side path that we must examine that's very current, as you'll realize, to our society today. Listen to first the commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now we go for some further definition to Romans chapter 1. Romans, of course, is a cornerstone book of the whole Bible in terms of diagnosing what human sin is, what God's salvation is, and how we receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. And there are important words I'm going to read, Romans 1, 16 through 32. Listen again to God's Word. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling immortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the Word of God. If you had any doubt whatsoever that rapid seismic change has been underway in all of Western morality, you could capsulize it in the remarks of two successive popes of the Church of Rome. The New York Times reports that in 2005, eight years ago, now retired Pope Benedict XVI wrote this. I quote him. Homosexuality is a strong tendency ordered towards an intrinsic moral evil and an objective disorder, unquote. You probably noticed, I don't know how you could not have noticed, that his recent successor, Pope Francis I, said a month ago, I quote, If someone is gay and seeks the Lord, who am I to judge them? Unquote. Is there any doubt that new breezes are blowing in the Vatican? Is there any doubt when the Queen of England, as head of the Church of England, chimes in with what Pope Francis I said? Or how about these two quotes? President Obama saying this, I couldn't be prouder of him. First Lady Michelle Obama saying, he has just made a wonderful difference for the lives of many of our young people. Who were the president and his wife talking about? NBA basketball player Jason Collins, who chose to publicly broadcast his homosexuality and being one of the first professional athletes to do so a few months ago. The president and first lady, profuse in their praise, could not have been thought of 10 years ago. Another voice commented on Jason Collins' news for the world. It was ESPN reporter Chris Broussard, a sports reporter. I thank God for his people wherever they are. God has sports reporters in his camp. Known to be a serious Christian, Chris Broussard, in very calm respectful tones, and actually it was revealed later that he and Jason Collins happened to be friends who can say these things plainly to each other. 
Broussard said on the air that the Bible defines homosexuality as sinful along with any heterosexual activity outside of marriage. Here's exactly what he said. If you are living in unrepentant sin, not only in homosexuality, but also by any marital adultery, fornication, premarital sex, or whatever, the Bible sees that as walking in open rebellion to God and to Christ. Wow. The reaction was a point six earthquake on the media Richter scale. Chris Broussard was condemned, lambasted, called a hate monger, and his network officially apologized for him, although he maintains that there is nothing to apologize for. Do you wonder why we are looking more and more these days to Psalm 11.3 that says, if the foundations are being destroyed, what shall the righteous do? I planned this series of messages on the Ten Commandments way back in the spring. I did not plan on an interruption, as most of you know, of many weeks. And this message would have come at a time when our college students were still at home, and I wish that were true, but unfortunately, it couldn't happen. As we would talk about the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, I knew we could not simply say that that was something about marriage or marital partners being unfaithful. It is that, of course, but it's wider. The seventh commandment, to be properly defined, has to do with all sexual activity that is not God's plan and God's blessed way of relating to one another. And so I knew that we would have to take some time, and I plan to take this week and next Sunday, to talk about plain words about same-sex relationships. You'll find that I won't use the word homosexual too much. I don't think it's a very useful word. And I think the word gay is almost a silly word. It used to mean happy. It doesn't mean that anymore. I'm not sure what it means, quite frankly. It's better to talk about same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships. Those who are involved in this are breaking the commandment, the seventh commandment, just as much as the husband or wife that seeks to have sex outside of their marriage. Now, the question is, does the Bible have anything plain to say about this? And people will get into a big wrangle about Sodom and Gomorrah and the book of Leviticus and other things which do have a relationship to the issue. I won't say they don't. But far better to begin with a passage that is the root and branch of the whole thing. And that root and branch is Romans chapter 1. Scripture does define moral truth on this issue. Let there be no doubt about that whatsoever. Romans 1 explains the origin of homosexual desire and actions as a symptom of humanity's fundamental anti-God rebellion. We read here that once we refuse our essential need to give praise to God and live in thanksgiving to God, we are going to go wrong in our inherent understanding of ourselves. What it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman will be turned inside out. And the way that God ordained for our blessing will become to us actually much more like a curse. 
I'm going to stress this to you, and it will come out more clearly next week than it will today. I hope that you will hear, certainly before I finish this morning, that those caught in the snares of same-sex attraction and relationships are not untouchable outcasts from the kingdom of God. Next time I will talk about the whole subject of mercy for those who struggle in this area. And we will realize that alongside the tremendous mercies of God, same-sex practice is no more permanent or unforgivable than many very supposedly respectable sins that you and I get away with every single day of the week. But our main question today is to ask this, first of all. Shall we live according to the ever-shifting tides of human emotion, or shall we live guided by divine revelation? I usually glance at the letters to our Lancaster New Era newspaper, and it's always fascinating to me to see how this subject, especially in recent days, is represented there. As many of you may know, if you look at those letters, some of you have written those letters. And Christians write letters and they cite Scripture and say, look, here's what the Bible says. I'm not trying to hit you on the head with it, but it's a plain truth. Here it is. A few days later, you'll see responses. And the response will often be pretty full of sarcasm, attempting to demolish that biblical position. And the two sides, you know, go like this. Whoom. 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 And they never touch because they're coming from two absolutely different bases of truth and morality. Now, a generation ago, if you called yourself an evangelical Christian, one of the things that meant was that you believed salvation was only for those who come to God through Jesus Christ by faith in his shed blood and righteousness. That was probably the primary definition of evangelical. But the second definition of evangelical has always been that you believe the inspired 66 books of what we call the Holy Bible are revelation from God, eternal, unchangeable truth. And whatever the Bible says is true. Evangelicals are unafraid to use words like infallible, without error. Our Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about Scripture and summarizes this way, saying, the authority of Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not on the testimony of man, but on God who is truth itself and the author thereof. And Jesus said it. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus said not a, not a sentence, not a dot over an I or the crossbar of a T is going to drop from the law of God until every bit of it is fulfilled. And he was the one who came to fulfill it. Now, learn a big word if you don't know it. What we're facing here is a question of what the philosopher calls epistemology. $5 word. What does it mean? Epistemology is simply the way in which we know something. If you tell me, if you make a statement, I could say, well, how do you know that is true? And you might say, well, I experienced it, or I read it in a book, or whatever. How do we know anything is morally true? The Christian's epistemology is based on the Bible. We are able to say, thus says the Lord. Because God, in giving a book, although through human authors, worked so marvelously by his Holy Spirit that his own word and his own truth 
is perfectly represented there. Therefore, when we started to define what adultery is, that Exodus says don't do it, we went back to Genesis 2 and examined what marriage is. The partnering of a man and a woman in the wonderful mystery that's called one flesh that talks about more than just sex, but the uniting of their minds and their spirits to create, in a sense, a third person, a whole new person before God, and that any sexual union outside the castle of marriage displeases the Lord and is not his will. That's what adultery is. And therefore, when we come to talk about same-sex attraction and practice, we are also talking about adultery in the broader sense. How do we know something's true? Well, a new day has dawned. Were you aware of it? A new day has come with such thunderous rapidity, it's amazing. Because now the individual is king, and whatever the individual says is true, is true. And if the individual can find five of his friends who agree, it really must be true. And if the individual can somehow execute a poll in which 51% of the people say it's true, why, it's absolutely true. And so we live now by this shift of human emotions and human perceptions and human preferences. My feelings, my sense of pleasure, and, oh yes, that broad sense of being tolerant. Do you know how to spell that word? Tolerant? It means any position is right except if it came from the Bible or out of the mouth or of an evangelical Christian. Tolerant. Moral authority belongs to my feelings, my preferences, and the feelings and preferences of a large group of people. No, there cannot possibly be eternal, unchanging moral truth which trumps the individual's viewpoint. That idea has been wiped away. Maybe you weren't aware of it, but it's gone. The president thinks so. The Queen of England thinks so. I'm beginning to think perhaps the new pope thinks so. And lots of people think so. Now, human beings have always been tempted to live by their feelings without regard for the fact that there's almost nothing more variable or, or nothing that's more of a will-o'-the-wisp change in the moment than your feelings or your individual perceptions. They're unreliable. Your emotions depend on what you had for lunch, perhaps, or maybe you missed lunch and, and you know, your body's in a low-glucose state or something, and That determines your decisions. Well, in place of just feelings, for a long time we had a broad moral consensus, not just in America, but throughout Western civilization. Go back thousands of years. And we had what is often called the Judeo-Christian ethical consensus. And that is very similar to what the Old and New Testaments teach. In fact, the laws of both Britain and America and many other countries are built upon the basic moral consensus of the Bible, and upon what some people, if you don't want to be biblical about it, some people would just say they would talk about natural law, things that appear to be right, that are instinctively, you know, don't murder. Well, yeah, I mean, you can be a Muslim or a Hindu or a Christian or anything else, and don't murder sounds like a good idea according to natural law. And so we had this consensus from natural law, from biblical law, that sustained Western society for a long time. 
now it seems like the consensus has been shattered with almost dizzying speed. And the thing that concerns me most of all is to realize that there are younger adults, particularly, it seems, in evangelical Christian churches who are themselves being wooed by this lack of a consensus and by the new social consciousness of emotions and preferences and are saying, I'm not so sure that the Bible does regulate homosexuality. I have a a friend who's gay, and, and he's a fine person. I have no doubt that your friend might be a fine person. But what does the truth of God say? A few weeks ago, a woman wrote to our local newspaper, and, you know, you really, if you've never written, I think their, their rule is 150 words. They don't always seem to obey it, but, but they hold it for most people. And you, you try it sometime. You have to be really economical to say something meaningful in 150 words. But this lady took a number of Scripture passages that spoke against same-sex attraction or homosexual actions, and she just kind of dismissed each one. And then she came to Romans 1. And uh, I don't have her exact words in front of me, but I, I'm not misquoting her or not misrepresenting her. When she said, yes, Romans calls homosexuality impurity, dishonoring of their bodies, unnatural. But then she said this. Now listen. And this this is an exact quote. But of course, but of course, you see, everybody knows in their own mind and their own emotions, but of course, that does not apply to a loving, committed relationship. I fell off my chair and was gasping on on the kitchen floor. But of course... The eternal word of God does not apply to a loving, committed relationship. Do you see what is going on in epistemology today, even if you didn't know that word 20 minutes ago? How do we know something's true? Well, it doesn't really matter what God said if my mind says, I don't like that. I wanted to find that lady's phone number and call her up and politely say to her, Dear lady, You might as well have said, this morning at breakfast, I walked up behind my husband because he had spoken cruelly to me when he got up this morning. So I walked up behind him and shot him three times in the back of the head. But of course, it's not murder because he spoke cruelly to me. So we throw away plain statements of God because, of course, my mind, my preferences, my emotions say something different. We're always going to keep talking past each other in these discussions because we have a different base for truth. One says, thus says the Lord. The other says, I feel. The poll says, my friends all agree. Well, I used to think that way, but now I I know this wonderful gay couple and they're the best neighbors I've ever had. The question is, Are God's commandments carved in stone? Or are they written in pencil on silly putty to be reshaped any way that you want to reshape them? Will you listen to the authority of God's word because it speaks without ambiguity? Now, what does it say? So secondly, we go to Romans 1. And this is a vast text, all kinds of details and side paths in it. I'm looking for the flow and the sweep of it, not all the details. 
Perhaps it would be good if you had a Bible open in front of you to Romans 1 to, to catch this flow, this sweep of truth as we take from Romans 1 this point. Same-sex attraction has always been a primary symptom of human rebellion against God. Do you know the, the expression or, or the phrase, the canary in the coal mine? Does that mean anything to some of you? I'm sure some of you older folks. It, apparently in England, they used to actually take canaries into the coal mine. Why? Because there were dangerous gases and methane and things that could, you know, affect the miners, knock them out, and they could even die. Well, you take a bird that doesn't have nearly the lung capacity or the vitality of a man, and so what you're trying to find out is, hey, if there's a dead canary on the floor of the mine, there's gas, and we've got a problem. Well, in a sense, what Scripture is saying here, as God speaks through the Apostle Paul, is that the manifestation of homosexuality and what you would call unnatural affections is like the canary in the human coal mine. When man goes wrong, he doesn't understand who he is anymore, and this is what you see. Now, let me just give you this, uh, the quick sweep of this here in a few paragraphs. First, we, we're told that there's a basic knowledge of the existence of God that's universally present in all people. They may not know about Jesus Christ and his gospel, but they know there's a God. They have a sense of a creator. And they're responsible for what they do with that knowledge. What many of them do is refuse it. Oh, well, I, you know, I, somebody must have designed all this complexity and beauty, but don't worry about it. I'll just pretend it doesn't exist. And it says the wrath of God is revealed against that. Now, God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. It is his settled reaction against those who trample upon and reject the knowledge of him. And he may be merciful and is merciful with people for decades and decades of their lives, but ultimately God's wrath in judgment must be satisfied. So Romans 1 says in verse 18 there's this problem of ungodliness, anti-godliness. People know basically what's true about God, but they, I love the verb, they suppress it. I always think of pushing the lid. We used to have a jack-in-a-box that our kids loved. I think we still have it somewhere. It's like a 40-year-old toy that actually still works. And, you know, the top pops off and jack comes up and then you push him back down and relatch it and wind it up again and boom, out he comes. And you keep suppressing jack. You keep putting him back in the box. Well, that's what people do to God. They suppress the truth about God. Well, here's what happens. Here's what can be a primary manifestation of those who do that as we see verses 22 and following unfold here in Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. They exchange God's glory for the images of animals and creeping things. You say, well, I'm not doing that. I guess I'm okay. Well, how about verse 24? God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. He gave them up to dishonorable passions, and the women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature, and the men committed shameless acts. You know, women, he's not picking on you. As a matter of fact, Paul respects you. Some of the texts say, even the women. And I, we believe what Paul meant there was women are generally much more modest about things, these things where men are primarily, tend to be at least, more driven by their lust. And Paul's saying, even the women, the more modest people, are doing what God did not ordain in nature should happen. 
And here's this sweep. Now, I'm not going to look at every word and every verse here, but just look. I mean, can I possibly be mistaking what this says? Impurity, dishonoring of their bodies, dishonorable passions, contrary to nature, shameless acts. You know, I could exegete every one of those Greek words and impress you that, you know, what they mean. You can see and hear the sweep of what they mean. Paul is not on some peevish personal rant here against homosexuality. He's telling you a broad, basic, moral principle that when mankind, not just individual men and women, but mankind as a whole, suppresses the knowledge of God, what happens? We don't even have a right knowledge of ourselves anymore. And we don't even understand anymore what it is to be a man or to be a woman. And we start living an unnatural life with one another. We are experiencing really what amounts to a tremendous case of mistaken identity. Jerry Brown, governor of California. Some of us knew him in the 60s and 70s when he was barely out of the hippie stage and people called him Moonbeam Jerry Brown. Now governor of California has signed into law, I understand, a law that says if a six-year-old or nine-year-old or 13-year-old child in California decides that their gender preference is opposite from the body that they inhabit, then the six-year-old boy, if he thinks his feminine side is dominant, should use the girl's lavatory. This is law in the state of California. Can you believe that? Folks, the monkeys are running the zoo. That's all I can say. Romans 1.32 says that what we do with this, we, are, we, we become so darkened in our thinking, we're thinking inside out all the time, and then we even come to say, well, this is the right way. This is God's way. This is just an alternative way. Look at verse 32. They know God's decree about practice of these things, but they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Yesterday, a judge of the Supreme Court presided for the first time in history at a so-called gay marriage. It's not a marriage. Judge Ginsburg can preside over anything she wants to. It's not a marriage. There may be laws in this land that say it's a marriage, but it's not a marriage. God did not cause that behavior. God did not motivate that behavior. In fact, Look at what 24, 26, and 28, the verses say here in Romans 1. When people are given over to this, their minds are darkened, their thinking is foolish, they're turned inside out, and what does it say? God gave them up. God suffers long with the follies of mankind. But folks, you need to know that the worst punishment we might ever endure on this earth is to have God, the God of glory, give us up and say, you've made this bed, you're determined to have it this way, you won't have me, you won't glorify me, you won't thank me, you won't obey me, you won't worship me, I'm giving you up. And when God has given you up on this earth, you are already experiencing hell on earth. And what you call humanity is more like a lonely, haunted, caricature, scarecrow version of humanity. It is not full-orbed humanity with the blessing of God. 
This, my friends, the Bible says, is true. Same-sex attraction has always been a primary symptom of human rebellion against God. You have to have a big pair of scissors to get Romans 1 out of your Bible. There's no mistaking what it says. Now, I have just a short third point. And it would seem to you today that I've joined the voices of those that the world is going to call the hate mongers, and I've just given you 20 minutes of hate speech. That's what I would be accused of. That's what, if I were speaking in Sweden, I'd be taken to jail for. Swedish pastors have been jailed for telling you what I've just told you. That's true. We may not be so far away from it. But for today, I want to give you a third point because we'll see it better next week, I promise you. If we face the undeniable truth of Romans 1 about same-sex attraction and practice, with that point clarified, what we will also need to see alongside the truth is that there must be grace, mercy, and compassion shown towards those who are enmeshed and trapped in this tremendous struggle of their own identity. I'll formalize the point by saying it this way. We are called to choose between powerful salvation in Christ or living within a debased mind. The whole context of this passage, let me go back to verse 16, the first verse I read. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel He's setting the theme for this entire book of Romans. For the gospel, the good news about Christ, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is a powerful answer from God for this. A transformational answer. You need to read Romans 1 and know that it isn't written only to the homosexual. It's written to you, by the way, Take seriously verses 29 and 30, which have a list of about 20 other manifestations besides same-sex practice that show God rebellion. Do you fit any of them? Gossip, slander, insolent, haughty, boastful, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I think you're in there somewhere. I am. You see, all of these things show that we're rebelling against God. And we are called to what the bad news of the early part of Romans leading right on through the middle of chapter 3 tells us the worst news humanity could ever know. Nobody's righteous. Nobody seeks God. All have turned aside. All have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Wow. I'm ready to throw away my Bible and walk away. But you need to hang in there to Romans 3.21 when the tremendous good news breaks. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All who believe. Gossips, malingerers, insolent people, slanderers, liars. Oh, yes. Also, those who haven't got their basic gender identity figured out according to God's Word. We need to hear the worst truth there is about us and that we're thinking with a debased mind until we come to God in Christ for a whole new mind and a tremendous forgiveness. Believers, 
those of you who don't live with a debased mind, I trust I'm addressing many of you in this room, we need to understand that we're not going to win these arguments. I'm not telling you not to write to the newspaper. You can, but you're not going to win the argument because you're, you're, you're in a sense, speaking Spanish and they're speaking Latin. Or you're speaking Greek and they're speaking Hebrew. You're coming from a completely different source of truth. Well, if I say we're not going to win the argument, what point is there of even talking about it? Well, let me suggest to you the point is not that we win an argument, but maybe we might win souls, which is much more important. And we will not win souls if we do what some Christians have done throughout Christian history, and certainly some still do, and take this truth and say, aha, I must go into the world denouncing with, with hatred and venom the vileness of people caught up in homosexual behavior in same-sex attraction. They are awful people. I must name them. I must fear them. I must trample on what they are and tell the world to stay away from them. That is not what Paul is doing. Paul is first defining truth of God. But we need to take that truth and then go into this world concerned about souls, striving to do what really is very hard, being gracious and compassionate while we are truthful. I came across this letter on the Internet from a woman who described herself as a formerly active lesbian. Her eyes are open to Christ now. She's becoming his new creature day by day. And she wrote a letter to the Christian church at large. I'm just reading a few sentences of a much longer letter. But here's some of what she said. She said, Christian church, do not change the hard truths of the word of God to suit your gay friends. Do not compromise Scripture to give in under the pressure to be politically correct. Do not act as if our sins are acceptable, for they are not, and neither are yours. She said, we who struggle hardest with same-sex attraction may not yet be completely where we shall be in the end, but she said, thank God we're not all what we were before Jesus found us. Truth administered with grace is our difficult calling. I give the final word to John Newton, a man who lived long before such things were publicly discussed. The man who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton said this, I have never despaired at the present situation of any other man since God saved me. Let us pray. Father, how much we would like not to talk about this. How much easier it would be if we could just say, ah, do your thing. Do what your preferences and your emotions tell you to do. And I won't judge you. Father, you judge those who are in rebellion against you. And that included us, each one. 
before Christ saved us in his powerful salvation. Will you give us minds of truth, tongues that are bold, hearts that are generous and compassionate as we see others engaged in a deadly struggle? We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.